I'm Chara Santilli. I was born with ambition. My parents were entrepreneurs and I pushed myself to be high school valedictorian, class president, most artistic, and most likely to succeed. The summer I turned 19, we celebrated my dad's 50th birthday with a hot air balloon ride. A crash landing left him with a broken neck, me with a broken heart, and my mom coping through alcohol. My relentless ambition helped me become a successful entrepreneur, yet my own private paralysis and overachiever addiction ruled me. I finally ventured on a quest for my best life. I found the path of my inner peace, how to stay on it and how to show the way for others. Now it's your turn. Ready to take that load off your shoulders? Join me so you can cherish your life. Today, I am thrilled to have on for the first time, actually, two guests at once. This is very exciting. I have on with me Dr. Eben Alexander and Karen Newell. They are co-authors of the book, this book here, if you're watching the video, Living in a Mindful Universe, which I have tapped and highlighted all over the place. And I'm thrilled to share with you today more about that and more about Dr. Alexander and Karen Newell. You may, if you've been following me for a while, recognize Dr. Alexander's name, or you may already know of him. He was on a few months ago to share about his NDE experience, a remarkable near-death experience that happened at the time that he was a practicing neurosurgeon. And he wrote about that experience in his New York Times number one bestseller, Proof of Heaven. And we spoke, uh, he shared with us at length more about that story and uh, experience that he had and, and that book on that prior episode. And I'll put a link to that in the show notes. So you can go back and, and hear more about the, the his journey. Uh, he'll share maybe a, a brief summary today, a couple sentences, to, but if you want to hear all the details, go back and listen to that episode. It's fascinating. And it really does prove that science and spirituality are connected. So we're going to talk more about that today. But here's in a nutshell, Dr. Alexander was an academic neurosurgeon for over 25 years, including 15 years at Brigham and Women's Hospital, Children's Hospital, and Harvard Medical School in Boston. And in 2008, that's when he experienced the transcendental NDE. And that he during that time, he was in a week-long coma from this inexplicable brain infection that completely changed his worldview. He was very much a materialistic scientist point of view, I think is something along those phrasing. He can correct me later. But he is now very much a pioneering scientist and modern thought leader in emerging science that really acknowledges the primary uh, primacy of consciousness in the universe and fascinating where consciousness lies. We'll get into more of that today. Karen Newell is a specialist in personal development with a diverse body of work that rests upon the foundation of heart-centered consciousness. She's an innovator in the emerging field of brain wave entrainment audio meditation, which we touched on a little bit in the prior uh, episode, but we'll get to hear straight from her today about that. And she empowers others in their journey of self-discovery by helping them connect with their inner guidance and find inspiration and improve their wellness and develop their intuition. She is co-founder of Sacred Acoustics that is has to do with this brainwave entrainment audio meditations. So there is the overview, and I am thrilled to have you both. Welcome to the show. Well, Cheris, thanks so much for having me back on, and especially with my best half, Karen. Yes, thank you. I'm looking forward to this. Yes. Yeah, so we should maybe, yeah, explain that you guys also are your partners in life as well as partners in some of your work and in out there speaking and getting messages out to the world and in partners in writing this fabulous book. So um, uh, let's, uh, let's any, maybe just a little bit more about um, Dr. Alexander, the uh, I shared really briefly about the NDE, but you know, if you can do your most succinct, because they can go listen to the whole thing in the episode, you're you're just emphasizing especially 
how the proof showed the scientific evidence was there that this was not something you fabricated and your brain made up. Can you just touch on that just very briefly here so that we can bring people up to speed um, in case they don't know about you? Yes, very briefly, you know, as a practicing neurosurgeon, what my journey showed me, spending a week in coma due to severe um, gram-negative bacterial meningoencephalitis that involved my entire neocortex, is the brain is not the producer of consciousness. Um, that message is greatly strengthened by a, a, a medical case report on my medical records. Uh, I think we discussed all that last time too. Uh, and that case report, uh, first of all, made it crystal clear from their perspective after detailed review of my records that my brain was in no shape to have any kind of dream or hallucination, much less the most extraordinary experience of my life. Uh, and secondly, that um, my very uh, kind of complete recovery is a deep mystery. It's unprecedented in the medical literature. And in fact, when challenged, you know, how do you explain this case by the scientific peer review editors, the authors of the report said it's because he had an NDE because he had this profound experience. That's what is related to this miraculous recovery. Um, and that's all we really need to say about it right now, but it challenged me and I've spent 15 years as a scientist working with other scientists around the world. And of course, the work Karen and I have done uh, together for the last 11 or 12 years uh, is all about helping everyone get on board with this uh, profound message uh, of, of hope and inspiration for humanity. Fabulous. Okay, so, um, but, but I just want to stress, people, please, please go back and listen to that episode. And I also implore you to listen to uh, listen to or read both books, um, Living in a Mindful Universe, that they wrote together, as well as um, Proof of Heaven uh, that Dr. Alexander wrote that sparked um, the, this. So, um, so Karen, what, how about um, you share, first of all, he, in your own words, what is your core message that you're wanting to get out into the world? All right. Well, I'm going to tell you in the context of how uh, Evan and I met. Perfect. And when we first, yeah, when we first met, um, his book wasn't out yet. So, you know, I didn't know his story. In fact, I learned he didn't even have an agent, but I knew he had had a near-death experience. And I'd met others who'd had near-death experiences. And I also knew that uh, in every near-death experience story, there's some kind of profound personal lesson that people learn. And so rather than hearing about what he actually did, I wanted to know, what did you learn? What was that big lesson that uh, you came back to this world with? And he says, the brain doesn't create consciousness. And I was confused by that because I wasn't expecting an answer like that. And I said to him, well, why would anyone think that it does? And that was an honest kind of question. I didn't know. Uh, that that was sort of the fulcrum of materialist scientific thought. I had no idea that that was this underlying assumption that was really the basis of all this kind of science. And I wasn't a scientist. I didn't find the answers, you know, to the questions I had about life through science. Uh, it seemed kind of limiting describing the physical world but not what's going on inside of me. Science likes to pretend that that's just an illusion or I guess we have psychology for that. But even then it's not considered real hardcore science as much as the physical world is. But I knew from my own experience uh, how important my outlook was, my underlying beliefs, my traumas that I'd had in the past that I didn't even realize hadn't been processed all of that was critically important to how I was living my life. And so that's why I understood that consciousness from my own personal perspective was quite important. And so when he said consciousness you know, isn't created by the brain, it's fundamental in the universe. I was like, well, of course it is. That was the thought that I had. Uh, but that I think is kind of what drew us together. What I was really interested in was, uh, well, what about the love? People talk about that love and he goes, oh yeah, yeah, the love. Oh my gosh, amazing. I mean, Evan talks beautifully as many near-death experiencers do about this love that they touch. But he says, but it was kind of like he was dismissing it and saying, but you can't bring that here. That's, that's for you when you go there. And I was again, confused because I had touched that kind of love in my spiritual experience. It's not a near-death experience, but I had learned how to cultivate that love. And that's why I asked him about it. 
And I said, oh, contraire, I think you can bring it back here. And I know other people besides myself who have done so. And so that both of those things together, I think, really intrigued Eben on, wow, what what does this what is this person? What can this person show me that that I think is brand new news? And I'm thinking this is not brand new, uh, but that's where we were, and uh, when we first met. That's thank you. That is an awesome uh, way to start off, and it is I. It is sort of ironic, right? Here's this brilliant neurosurgeon who who has all this knowledge, and then had to almost die to, or basically, you know, in essence, die nearly to then have this understanding and awareness. And here you are, more typical person functioning in the world that is, um, from my understanding, your background and things which you can share a little bit more. But um, I think just more that most of us can relate to a little bit more versus a brain surgeon. And yet you you already felt like you knew this information. So I think it's just amazing to hear what it takes for some people to have new ahas and new awarenesses in life. And now keep in um, mind, I, I yeah, keep in mind, I don't know how to operate on a brain. <laughs> and that is knowledge that only a select number of people in this world have. So it's not to diminish the, you know, the wonderful background of science that he has, but it's to point out that when scientists focus so much on that one particular skill, they do tend to tune out other uh, information that, that might be helpful. But it, there's an advantage to focusing only on what he was focusing on. So it's not a it's not meant to be a diminishment of him, but it is typical, as you say, for doctors, scientists to sort of dismiss this kind of love and connection and consciousness a little more easily. So yeah, it yeah. took the experience mm -hmm. to get yeah. it to turn around. And compartmentalize. I think it's more typical, you know, but I think yeah. that, I think that's way even, even beyond neurosurgery. I mean, it seems like a lot of human beings function that way, very much focused in something. And then uh, it's easy to have the, the blinders on to other things out there. So having these, having people like you, uh, come together to spread the message with your varied backgrounds and and do it in the way that you do it is uh, phenomenal and and helps touch many more people and and I really appreciate that you've done that. So um, so Karen, tell us a little bit about like I know I remember reading in here around like when you first started your spiritual journey and and like into meditation. I think a lot of my listeners can really relate as I could too around you you talked about in your own words, but something along the lines of having a hard time getting out of your head and you know you but you were so intrigued by what you heard about people experiencing in meditative states and being able to be mindful that you you know kept exploring it because you it seemed like you had a, a sincere determination to discover something. Um, so can you talk a little bit more about that? Because I think a lot of my listeners are very much in their heads and are uh, trying to connect more with their hearts, trying to get rid of all the cultural dogma of how we should and shouldn't be living our lives and the to-do lists and the busyness and all the stuff and try to take a breath and take the weight off our shoulders and how to live and enjoy our days better and easier. And so um, can you talk to that a little bit? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my motivation, as you say, really just came from a curiosity, a lifelong curiosity. Uh, I had pretty much rejected the scientific dogma as being the ultimate truth. And I had rejected the religious dogma I had learned as being the ultimate truth. I knew there was something missing. And uh, that's when I, as I grew older, began reading uh, more esoteric texts, uh, like theosophical texts, some Eastern texts, and uh, lots and lots of, of things related to that, even some uh, books that were supposed to be in the Bible that were edited out, stuff like that. I really wanted to know what other spiritual writings were out there. And eventually I realized I can only know so much by reading. 
and I needed to have an experience. And of course, Evans just happened to him, as many of these near-death experiences do. People don't expect them. But uh, that's one way to touch the spiritual realm. But I knew that uh, people who had long-time practices of meditation could do things like remote viewing um, or you know, energy healing, things like that I had heard about. And I had heard all of us can learn these things. So I wanted to try that out for myself. And so I started taking courses like animal communication, healing touch for animals. I took Reiki classes, uh, remote viewing, as I said, lots of things like that. And in every class, the teacher would say, okay, now we're going to meditate. And that was always kind of the beginning of, of any of these classes. And so I would go humor them and sit still and uh, follow their guidance. And nothing they were saying really made sense to me. I had this expectation that I should be seeing the stream they were talking about as we were walking by or some, or whatever they were describing. And that wasn't happening for me. And so I would, but I knew meditation was important. It kept coming up. And so I practiced on my own and uh, I was hesitant to join like a Buddhist group or something like that, that could teach you all the many skills of meditation, because I was a little hesitant to just jump into a whole other set of dogma without fully understanding it. So I tried it on my own. As many of your listeners may have, you know, we hear that you just sit still, close your eyes and focus on your breath. And so I would do this. And as you so eloquently described, I had lists going through my head, conversations that I wanted to have or that I had had the day before. I was a busy project manager in a media publishing industry. And uh, so we were very deadline oriented. Something had to happen every single day for us to stay on track. And that's where my mind was. And so I thought, well, this is silly. Uh, this is a waste of my time. <laughs> I can't uh, get anything done while I'm doing this except to be distracted by these things I need to be doing. And yet I was determined. And as you say, and it was certain types of sound that really helped to quiet the mind at first. Things like gongs or crystal bowls, brass bowls, you might be familiar with a very beautiful, like wah, wah, wah kind of sound that really captivated my attention. And so that was able to keep me focused a little bit longer than just a few minutes uh, of frustration. And uh, it was binaural beats are a very specialized type of sound that's created to help quiet the mind, to help reduce our attention on the distracting thoughts and more focus our attention on uh, a singular thing, whatever that may be. <clears throat> and so I started using binaural beat recordings and that's where I started to find some uh, progress. And talk, at first- Talk a little bit about what binaural beats are because I think most our people, unless they listen to the prior episode, we, we touched on it, he explained it, but maybe just a quick explanation. Yeah, so at first I would just fall asleep to these recordings and that is because they're designed to bring the brain into quieter, calmer states of awareness. So we're normally in a beta state when like right now we're walking, if we're talking, uh, doing just normal things, we're in a beta state and that can be measured uh, through an EEG, Evan knows the full word, but through an EEG device attached to the head, it's uh, measuring the electricity and cycles per second. And so it's roughly uh, 12 to 30 hertz, that's the beta range. And we make recordings, binaural beats are designed to bring people into 12 hertz and lower. And so seven to 12 hertz is the alpha range. That's the kind of focus state. If you're studying or it can also pop up during dream time while you're asleep, the alpha state. And it, roughly between four and seven hertz is the theta state. That's associated with deep, deep meditation. That's what, when they first started studying monks in around the early 2000s, that's the state that they often found them in, the theta state. Zero to four hertz is the sleep state. And so binaural beats often bring you into uh, a place between asleep and awake, kind of that border between delta and theta, right around that four hertz mark. And so that's why it's so easy to fall asleep when you first start listening. But the trick is to train your awareness to stay alert and aware while your body goes into a profoundly relaxed state. And this is known as the hypnagogic state. We're all familiar with this because we go into that state naturally as we're falling asleep at night. 
or when we're first waking up in the morning, we'll feel kind of asleep and awake at the same time, maybe dream fragments, things like that. This is the state that we enter into using these binaural beats. And that's where you, many people have found that uh, they're able to uh, reduce their attention on those distracting thoughts. And some people, after a time of practice, including myself, were able to connect with inner guidance, uh, kind of tap into, as I say, more of that soul of who we truly are beyond our bodies and the roles we play on earth. And the more you can sort of align with your soul, that's when you start to run into maybe uh, emotions that haven't been properly processed, uh, beliefs, limiting beliefs, like I had one, which was, I can't meditate. I used to tell myself that all the time. I can't meditate. That's an example of a limiting belief. And so I made that conscious decision to start changing that inner talk to, yet you can meditate. You need practice. You can meditate. And that eventually allowed me to really change that belief system over time. So these recordings really just allow us to, as I say, get in touch with more of that soul essence of who we are. And I'd just like to add, um, uh, Karen did a beautiful description of the various alpha, uh, delta, theta, um, EEG waves, but important to point out that the binaural beats are slightly different frequencies to the two ears. And the numbers that she mentioned, for example, if we're going for four hertz as a driver, that comes from using, say, 100 cycles per second in one ear, 104 in the other ear. And it's the arithmetic difference between the two that generates the number we're looking for. And you can use many different carrier frequencies to generate these, but it's the difference between the two, the arithmetic difference, that defines the impact that they will have in the lower brainstem. And I will add, too, that now that you brought that up, is these binaural beats, you can find them for free, like on apps or on YouTube and stuff like that. But we've gone beyond that basic formula. Uh, that basic formula can be a bit harsh to listen to. It just sounds, it doesn't sound like a beautiful crystal ball. It sounds like, you know, two, two different tones in your ear, very electronic. And so we've developed techniques to uh, combine our different frequencies using harmonic principles. And that allows a, our tones to sound a bit more musical. And it allows us to avoid having to use uh, pink noise, white noise, rain, ocean, those kinds of sounds that help to mask those digital frequencies. So yeah, it's very complex formulas uh, built into every single one of our recordings for various purposes, uh, as Evan described, based on the brainwave state we want to support. And also to maximize the effect, best to use headphones or earbuds. So you're really separating the signal a little bit better than you can do with speakers. Although, we do create our recordings using uh, monaural beats as well. And so that does give us some ability to deliver the same kind of effects using speakers. But yes, headphones are gonna give you, generally speaking, the best results when listening to binaural beats. But you can see there's a lot of complex formulas going into these recordings. So it's not just a, a simple, you know, one frequency in one ear and one in the other. There's a lot more going on. And it was really cool in your book, um, there's a, a section too where you talk about uh, exploring and creating these. So it's really neat to, to you know, if you read, read or listen to the book to hear about that adventure that you guys uh, went on together. And then um, my, and there'll be a link to the Sacred Acoustics app in the show notes, by the way, it's called Sacred Acoustics. I'll have a direct link in the app, I mean, in the show notes. And my fav personal favorite is um, Heart Presence for Inner Peace and Intuition. There's four tracks on that, and I um, I love those, especially the Inspire and Create, and they're uh, about 20 minutes long. And I want to add, too, that Karen's voice is lovely and is the voice guiding you in these. She It's not talking all the way through, and actually you can choose, too, uh, whether or not you want to hear uh, the, the voice instruction and guidance as well, which, uh, I know you recommend, and I also agree with you recommend to do that for a while. Um, but her, your phrase of, um, let go, which is in many of yours is, um, a favorite of mine. And actually when I'm doing any other guided meditation or listening to something or just on my own, and I'll even remind my clients that it's a great mantra to have and a great practice on the in-breath let, on the out-breath go. And, but 
your I've listened to this enough now that your voice is in my head too when I think of that. It's very supportive. So I just I want to thank you for that. It's it's quite beautiful. Well, and I will say I did not invent that inhale, yes. let exhale go. It came from some yoga teacher uh long ago. So yes, pay it forward, share it. Don't own that. Yeah. yeah very good. I, ironically, I was just working with a client last week in a private session. Um and by the end of the call, she realized she she likes to have a mantra uh, at the at a current time, just in general in her life, not always for meditation, just in general. And what came up for her was was uh, let it go. And uh, so it's been a theme lately. But um, okay, so so that is to give some background on this app. I highly recommend it. It's it's fabulous. I absolutely I love it. Say, let, me, let me say, Sharis, that the best way for people to access these recordings is on our website, sacredacoustics.com, because we have an app on the Android platform and the Apple platform, and they work very differently. And so people should start out on the website and any Recordings purchased on our website are available in the app for iPhone and iPad at no extra cost by logging in with your customer account. So oh. that gives you access to MP3 files and the versions within the app on Apple devices, which is a better value for your listeners. And oh, everything great. costs less on the website. So Okay. Okay. So we'll have that yeah. link below so you can just click there and go there. And, um, and I'm so glad to know that. Um, something that I... Uh, I wanted to look in here. Um, a few things that I tapped that I wanted to ask you about. Oh, this one. I loved this. I'm going to read a little bit. Um, this is around learning our soul lessons. Rather than waiting for a life review at the end of life, what if we could enact a daily or weekly review where notable events are assessed as potential lessons? Such reviews can bring significant life lessons to the surface while we still have time to make changes to our attitude and conduct. And it goes on a little bit later to talk about pay attention to what triggered you emotionally. This is a clue. You're possibly dealing with an important lesson. And then a little bit later too in that page, a focus on modifying one's own perspective as in you, you, you the listener, me, if I'm doing it, um, and behavior is vital, not dwelling on how the actions of others should change. So this is very much in alignment with how I teach and coach. And I just really, I, I this is one of my, I mean, I have like highlights and highlighted stars all in the margin of this whole page. I just love this because there is this, um, a lot of near-death experiences talk about a life review. You may have heard that. Some people, you know, and um, we could get all into that. But the point of this is, well, day to day, what what can we do? And that's actually the reason I do what I do and can help people is because I'm helping people who want to do this review and have support with a coach, right? So um, I just loved this so much. And I loved how you talk about pay attention to what triggered you emotionally. That is very much at the core of my training and certification as a certified fearless living coach. It's all about emotions. It's all about expanding your vocabulary and understanding of your emotions. So it's not just three different emotions. It's much more nuanced than that and understanding and then being aware when you get triggered and then being like, oh, what just happened? What's going on with me? How can I move that through me? Um, not bottling it up not um, becoming any kind of a holic of work or alcohol or other. And then the fact of focusing on yourself. What can you change about yourself? All of that, I just absolutely loved. So um, I'd love to hear either of you expand on any of that. Um, because I, I again, that was just one of my favorite things. And I'm glad I, I flipped to it so fast here. Wow. Well, that's uh, that's a practice that I had learned uh, through my own kind of personal growth and discovery before I had met Evan. And to be honest, I wasn't a big reader of near-death experiencers. Like I said, I had known people who had had them, but I wasn't out there voraciously reading all of the books. But I did know about the life review. And Evan, of course, saw how the life review worked during his near-death experience. And this is where you actually 
experience, at least the, well, many of the life reviews, not in every culture, uh, but most, most cultures will actually experience events, relive events from their past, from the other person's point of view. And that gives them this ability to see themselves in a, with a whole brand new light. And so when you read about that, I'm like, why do you want to wait? Just like you read, why do you want to wait till the end of your life? Uh, those life reviews actually start happening. We, we have a, a new friend, Dr. Christopher Kerr, who does research in the hospice centers. And um, he's found that those, those life reviews start when you're in the natural process of dying, which is very validating for the fact that near-death experiencers who don't actually go on to die and have a life review, it's very validating that this is actually what happens when you die. But these people are you know, going back to events that they didn't properly process through their lives. And somehow they're arising in those last you know, days and hours of their life. And they will, you will process those emotions. That's the lesson there, that they will eventually be processed. But if you process them now, then you're able to have some transformation in your life now. Death is actually what we understand is probably the most transformational thing that will happen to anyone. But you can have that same transformation now by having that perspective. Learning how important that perspective is at the end of your life really made me want to uh, try to address some of those things now. I'm kind of a, a precocious, you know, I was ahead in school, wanted to do things before my teachers were ready to teach me. And so that's my nature. Oh, life review, I better do that now. And so it is so effective to uh, look at past events from this new kind of perspective that you develop over time. And then you realize, oh my gosh, that's what I did to contribute to that situation. Instead of always blaming the other, very easy to do. That person makes me mad and I did that. And then I learned I'm mad because something in me makes me respond to that person, right? That's what it is. I think, uh, you know, we can look at our political situation right now and certain politicians, I won't, you don't even have to pick left or right. So there's some politician that just their name is going to trigger you into some response. And it can be, like I say, on either side. But why is that? What is it about us that's making us, you know, respond that way? That's the most important thing because we can only manage what's inside of us. We can't manage what's inside of other people. As a parent, I know I tried. <laughs> I tried to manage my daughter's emotions when she couldn't manage them. You, you just can't. She, you can only model and do certain things that eventually other people will notice and, and teach as you're doing directly with your uh, life coaching, Cheris. Uh, but yes, I think it's an incredibly, incredibly vital process that uh, I think will help us with uh, resolving things much sooner than when we get to the end of life and then start reckoning with, oh, I should have done this. I should have done that. Find your patterns now and change those should haves into actually did. Right. So Absolutely. Uh, you brought yeah. up your daughter and um, and it sounds and from what you shared in the book and what you said just now. It, you talk more about her in there, and I know that um, it it sounds like you you know tried to control, tried to fix plenty of times. Um, I know she had some uh, challenges with addiction and alcohol. I know Dr. Alexander shared about his experience with alcohol, and also I uh, my listeners know and you know my story as well. My mom battled alcohol and passed away specifically from liver failure 10 years ago after a couple decades of battling it. Um, and then we all have, I believe, most of us have some kind of addictions and some kind of things that we draw on, whether or not they are as obvious or as culturally um, you know, known. Like for me, workaholism, which gets accolades from our society oftentimes, unfortunately, so um, versus alcoholism that is, you know, shunned upon more. But uh, but share a little bit more about that, because I know that many of our listeners are also people that uh, still try to, con you know, catch themselves, hopefully are starting to catch themselves more about trying to control people, trying to fix people, trying to save people desperately, as I know I did for many years 
many, many years. And and what your experience was of of that and how you were able to get on the other side of that and let go of some of those things because I truly believe control is an illusion. Yeah, it was it's really tough to watch your teenager or anyone you love go through some really hard times. And uh I uh what really turned a corner for me on how to manage it is I was very good, I thought, at lecturing. <laughs> I was very good at pointing out very, you know, clearly and obviously where she went wrong and how she could do better if she would only do this. Very good lecturer. And I actually uh, read a book called How to Talk So Your Child Will Listen and Listen So Your Child Will Talk. And it was that listening so your child will talk that really got me. I, honestly, I don't think you need to read the book because it's all in the title is that uh, I learned to ask pointed questions and then let her answer them. Nice open-ended questions so that I could really hear and understand her feelings instead of trying to tell her what my feelings are and how my feelings were superior to hers. Uh, that wasn't very effective. And once I started to really listen to her, then I learned to validate her feelings. I used to say, well, you shouldn't feel that way because da, 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 da. And I've had that said to me and it, it goes nowhere, right? It absolutely goes nowhere. So validating someone's feelings, I learned to say, I understand why you feel that way. I understand how I contributed to why you feel that way. And now I'm trying something different. I was, I was very direct with her that that's what I was doing, a technique and uh, you know, to listen more. And she actually really appreciated that. And I had to hear some, diff we had some difficult conversations as I heard what she was ready to share. Uh, it took time for her to really share everything, uh, but we're both kind of over sharers. So uh, <laughs> you know, we'll share lots and lots of information with total strangers sometimes. I think maybe that's a, a woman thing, but uh, we definitely do that now. Uh, there, there's a lot of listening going on, but sometimes I still find myself, in fact, just recently, as I'm saying this to you, I was doing a lot of lecturing to her recently over something. And uh, mm -hmm. I still thought she needed it, but it didn't do any good because she didn't <laughs> do what I said. <laughs> and it's all going to be fine. That's the whole gist of it all is that she's doing just fine. Back then, she did need some interventions, and those interventions did help her. You mentioned alcohol. Her father was an alcoholic, just full-bred alcoholic. And this is what affected her, similar to how your mother affected you, but it was during her formative years. And so seeing all of that behavior, a, a pivotal event happened when she was around 16, where he pretty much didn't come home one night uh, when she was over at his place. Uh, we were no, long, were no longer married for a long time by then. And she saw when he did eventually come home, he was not himself. And that destroyed her. Um, her kind of uh, magical fantasy father was not really that. It was shown to her right in front of her face. And uh, yeah, it took a lot of time for her. And she went down that road too as one of her coping mechanisms. And he actually died in 2012. Uh, and uh, that was really hard for her too, because she was uh, around, she was in her early twenties and she felt like uh, she hadn't really resolved all the issues between him. But then even since then, she's had some contact with him uh, after death that has really through dreams and other types of experiences that has definitely let her know that uh, he loves her and it wasn't her that was causing all of this. Kids like to blame themselves, even as adults, that you know you must have played a role in this behavior. Uh, so long story short, she's come a long, long way. She's much more stable now. She, she has a, I have a grandson, a five-year-old grandson that she's a beautiful mother to, uh, still dealing some with her mental issues, but uh, in a much more capable way. And so, uh, yeah, it's a beautiful thing to watch her raise her child so beautifully uh, using some of the techniques she learned from me. It's very fun. <laughs> Yay. I love that. And I love it's, it, what you shared too. So honest about which I really uh, aim to do consistently is just here you are someone who meditates regularly 
um, and is is you know very I would argue to say very evolved and and very connected and very spiritual. And even you have these moments, right, where you where you are a human going to some old ways of being or some things that you you know rationally know are not very supportive in the moment, but it happens. And something else I wanted to, uh, it was a perfect, this is a perfect segue. I have a couple questions from a few people that I know that have listened to the podcast and um, then listened to the, the first uh, one with Dr. Alexander. And, and I said, you know, I'm having him back and with Karen Newell. Well, you mentioned he's been the your daughter's father's been in contact with her. So here's the question because it's in, it's in connection with that. And I'd love to hear both of you talk to this. So when a person departs or leaves this earth and are in the realms, yet then return to the earth, well, it's sort of in connection with this. I'll, I'll go on. Yet then return to the earth in a new body or incarnation. Does that then mean that the old self is still a guide or angel of sorts to those who remember them? even if they've come back to the earth as a new person, in effect, are they then two people? And when the second incarnation dies, they are a third person and so on with a collection of souls growing in the afterlife. So it's, so the, you know, are they able, when we do have connections that we believe are, uh, believe and or know in, in deep inside of us that are some spirit of someone that we loved and in, if you don't believe in reincarnation, please go back and listen to the prior episode with Dr. Alexander because he goes into scientific data and studies that really prove that this is a real thing that happens. So please, if you think I'm getting all woo-woo right now, um, if you're still listening to us, then you know I, I know there's a little part of you that is curious about all of this. So please go back and listen to that. But um, so... Who wants to go and, and, and talk to about this topic? I'll, I'll, I'll take a first uh, jab okay. at it. And it, this is where the whole concept of soul is so crucial. Um, and from my perspective, I think in a scientific sense, especially in the modern era of the science of consciousness, that involves not just neuroscience, but philosophy of mind, uh, non-local consciousness and parapsychology, quantum physics. There are many pieces that add to this. But the general model, as we discuss in our book, Living in a Mindful Universe, is that we're really sharing one mind. But that one mind grows through the interactions of these little eddy currents of consciousness that each of us represents. And um, so in, in terms of this particular question, I would, I would uh, say that you might have identifiable you know, individuals who live those lives, but you can trace to where it looks like one soul line so that uh, people, especially in the reincarnation literature, tend to remember one, you know, a lifetime previously and maybe one before that, but but not simultaneously. So it's not like they're uh, existing in two forms before, but it's kind of like a, a soul line that keeps going uh, and progressing. And that involves other souls. All of this growth is through our learning and teaching, through our experiences uh, with each other. Uh, important to note that there is something called program forgetting. Uh, that we uh, um, are not intended to remember all that knowledge, you know, lifetime to lifetime. But in many ways, it's stored in kind of that higher soul form. And the higher soul is what is doing the growing. And the higher soul is always interconnected with souls of the soul group. So we're all kind of sharing these experiences and, and sharing these lifetimes in a process of learning and teaching, transforming all of consciousness and it's, and it's not like the Buddhist idea of reincarnation where the goal is to get off the wheel of suffering of repetitive incarnations, but actually involves the concept of grace, growth, and, and really the evolution of all consciousness that we all contribute to. Um, and as I mentioned a minute ago, Dr. Jim Tucker, Ian Stevenson, the doctors who studied those 2,700 reincarnation cases, for example, out of University of Virginia, realize that you had to harvest those memories before age five or six. So these are very young childhood memories. Often the, the children have behaviors, phobias, you know, nightmares, things like that related to their previous lifetime and especially related to uh, the mode of death in the previous lifetime. 
But by the time they hit age five or six or seven, those memories are being covered over because now they are having skin in the game to buy into this incarnation to help learn and teach fellow souls. But that ultimately it is all a process of growth and our soul groups working together through multiple lifetimes uh, to help all of consciousness come into this wisdom. And, and I would just add that uh, one way to look at it is, you know, our souls, each of us have a soul that we pretty much understand, but uh, your soul is much grander than you might think of it here. So one way you could use language to kind of differentiate is to say that this is a personality, a, one aspect of a greater soul. This personality has incarnated into this lifetime. Now, if I die and go on to another lifetime, will my grandson, for example, when he dies, will I be there for him as you know this personality? The answer is yes. This is uh, that that some aspect of our personality seems to stay intact even when our soul moves on into another incarnation. So that's what kind of mediumship research will uh, tell us. And mediumship might seem uh, out of line to some of your listeners as well. But there's scientific research on mediumship as too. And this this comes from that the body of research that uh, somehow some aspect of our soul is available, even if it has uh, incarnated. And remember, it's incarnating into a different personality with different goals, but somehow on uh, uh, the same pathway. So you wouldn't have to re-experience the same events from the same point of view over and over and over again if you've transformed and learned whatever was about that particular event. And so. important to point out that to kind of get this bigger picture we're talking about, you have to realize that time flow in that spiritual realm, as near-death experiencers will tell you, that life review is not just a remembering of life events, it's a reliving of life events. You know, birth to death, everything in between, even past lives and uh, projections of future lives can be experienced in a life review. So that's where it's important to understand the concept of deep time or meta time. Uh, and this is something we do discuss a bit in Living in a Mindful Universe and in many of our talks. But that is what enables you to realize that that binding force of love is what really governs what happens so that uh, there's no chance that, you know, for example, uh, when I pass, uh, I look forward very much um, to encountering the souls of my uh, you know, birth parents, adoptive parents, uh, all of the loved ones in my life. And I know that they will be there. And it's not a, a, a fear of, oh my gosh, what if they've already reincarnated? Because in that setting of deep time, uh, you know, there's no such paradox. It's all about the love. And so the souls that are, that are to be there for us, to comfort and guide us in that transition will be there. It's not an issue of whether or not they've, quote, already reincarnated. So love beats time. Love beats time every time. <laughs> I love that. I love that. And while we're on the top of, of reincarnation, so there's another question um, that I got just yesterday from, um, actually, it's my, my homeopath slash chiropractor who has, has list, read your, the book um, Proof of Heaven. And he, I said, hey, I'm having them on the show tomorrow. And he said, do you have any questions? He says, yeah. He said, so... Um, after reincarnating on the physical, do you reincarnate repetitively on the astral? Like he was drawing me a little diagram about a physical realm and astral realm and all these different soul realms and I uh, that he's learned about however, so anything about any of that if you, you know, so the the concept of these like realms or this whole soul journey that's not necessarily and he was he was showing me he said from what he understands it's not necessarily just a raising it's like kind of a coming down and or coming up like it, it's not necessarily like higher so any anything you can talk to to that of what you understand or what you believe or what you know about that doesn't doesn't incarnation mean in a physical, physical body yes. yeah so you can't a soul can't incarnate as a soul right incarnation okay. means into a physical right, body. And right. then I think you can take it. From right. There. And, and so again, it just gets back to our discussion of the soul line and the soul group. And, you know, because of my amnesia, uh, fully explained, I think, in the last session and in the book Proof of Heaven, uh, I couldn't have an Eben Alexander life review, but I did witness life reviews and reincarnation very strongly in two particular visions in the core realm. 
Uh, and one of them that uh, kind of matches our current discussion was kind of the flying fish version where down in the water, you know, we're living in these material bodies, we're temporarily dumbed down to the knowledge of our higher soul, but that's where we go through all the, the growth actually occurs down here in this kind of murky realm. But then we pop up out of the water, that's when we leave the physical body at the time of death, rejoin higher soul uh, and rejoin, uh, you know, soul groups, plan next incarnations, all of that, and then dive back in. But then once you're in the spiritual realm, there are multiple realms. There's the okay. physical right. oh, realm. Oh yeah, absolutely. There are which... many different layers that go all the way to the purity of oneness. Uh, which I experienced as the core realm. So I think he's asking, or he or she is asking, if uh, if you have that same system within those realms of the spiritual realm. I don't think so. No, I, I think you think move necessary. between them. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but not necessarily have cycles in that realm and then cycles in this realm. That that seems a little complex. Right. I think very, uh, very interesting way to look at it, though. To explain okay. the the human experiences reported, you don't really need that multiple levels. Uh, of kind of reincarnating. It's simpler and more uh, kind of to the data to look at it as kind of like these flying fish. In and, and out. In and out. Uh, it's kind of like breathing, incarnation, exhale, incarnation, you know, and, uh, but it, but the key is that it's leading somewhere. There's meaning yes. and purpose that's richly involved in this. It's not a random chaotic process. And the way I saw that in my second vision, what I call the Endra's net vision, was really this incredibly rich multidimensional tapestry of golden threads interwoven lifetimes of sentient beings throughout the cosmos, all leading towards this brilliant golden center of kind of ultimate oneness with that divine creative source, uh, which I would say is the goal of all of this. And that's really the evolution of consciousness itself, because that one mind is deeply uh, involved in this beautiful process of change, of learning, teaching and growth and not some stable system where you get there and all of a sudden you have infinite knowledge about everything. Uh, because in fact, that one mind is in the process of, of, of learning through this incredible process of itself interacting with itself. We're sharing the dream of the one mind. And so as we're learning and growing, and I know, um, uh, I believe you, you believe that, um, we choose certain things that are, we come into this incarnation and this body and this experience with some intentions for certain things to happen. Not necessarily every single minute of our life, but certain things that are, I'm going to say planned in essence to have an experience. So, you know, looking at people who've had, who are like, doubting, like, why would I have chosen that? Why would I have chosen this? Mm -hmm. Why would I put myself through that? Um, mm -hmm. My family with a hot air balloon accident, like, seriously, would we have chosen that? Well, I, I have, I can get on the other side and get my, as I know, Dr. Alexander and I talked briefly last time, um, I think off camera actually about this, that it wasn't, it's not, it's not our ego saying this, like, in my human experience right. right now, I'd be like, no, that's crazy. Like, why would we choose that? But at, if I can get on the other side of that, then I can find some gifts and opportunities in anything out there, even the seemingly horrible things that, that are really hard for people and make for extremely traumatic and challenging lives. So I'd love to hear thoughts about that concept, because I know that's very much out in the spiritual world and personal development world in certain circles. And it's a hard one for people to swallow sometimes, oftentimes. It's a hard one to swallow, but it also is very empowering because it turns you from a victim of circumstance into someone who actually, uh, for whatever reason, wanted this event to happen. Now I'll point out that, um, yeah, the traumas we see in our world, none of us here from the human perspective could sit here and think, why would I plan that? You know, thinking of horrible child abuse and uh, animal abuse even, and you know, it, the list goes on. Uh, but we don't have the same perspective here that we have when we're not in our physical bodies. And through meditation and near-death experience and so on, people do gain a broader perspective but I dare say it's probably not as broad as it will be when you actually die. 
And so we're only getting hints of a broader perspective, even through these other techniques. But those broader perspectives can be found. And usually they're decades after the event took place, right? Because you haven't garnered the gifts or the blessings or the, oh, this would never have happened. And so in the middle of a crisis really is not the ideal time to sit and wonder, why would I choose this? I don't understand. That's just going to put you into despair. But to have a trust somewhere inside that there is a reason, uh, you don't have to know what the reason is. And it's, again, very hard to find when you're in the middle of a situation. And even if you find it, it doesn't seem very helpful, <laughs> at least when I've been in those situations. But later on, when you have that perspective, most of us have had childhood events, events that at some point, you know, decades later as adults, we realize, oh, that's not really what my mom meant. Oh, I don't have to think that way that I've been thinking all these years. We go through that. So it's natural to think that when we're age 40, that once we get to age 60 or 70, we'll have a much, much different perspective. And when we speak to people who are of that age and we're not quite there yet, but people say who are turning 80, that seems to be a, a kind of a time when people start to really see their lives as maybe scripted, uh, you know, how it all came together. And so it's perspective. We have a lack of perspective. So don't try in this state to understand why did my daughter have to die in a car accident and get angry about you don't have a good enough reason. I've watched people go through that and they want to find that reason that justifies it. I don't think you're going to find that reason when you're in that moment. But again, that trust that there is one, you don't have to worry about what it is right now, but that trust, there's a reason. And what is it about this situation where I can, uh, you know, act with grace, with compassion, with understanding, you know, it's how you respond to these situations that really, uh, gives you that opportunity for growth. And again, that lesson will come later, but trusting that it's there, really helps me now, even if I don't understand exactly what that lesson is. And I would simply add, it was crystal clear to me from my experience, my grander experience, my near-death experience, and then the 15 years since then of assimilating it and coming to an understanding, that in many ways, the hardships in life are gifts. And my ability to see them as gifts, and especially as Karen was just mentioning this beautiful process, well, people often look back on their life from say age 80, and it looks scripted. Uh, and the beautiful thing is they often interpret that script as being just what was meant to be. And they look back and they see the hardships. And when you're living through the hardships, they're horrible. And you're thinking, why me? Uh, and yet from this bigger perspective, especially kind of a soul informed and not just an ego locked perspective, we start to see how they gave us the ability to recover a sense of meaning and purpose, of connection with the universe, of love for others. And the more that we can navigate the hardships and challenges in life through harvesting a sense of unconditional love, compassion, kindness, acceptance, mercy, forgiveness, and never forget gratitude, the more we can start to live that version of the higher soul and not be slave to the issues of the ego which is where so many, I mean, all the addictions we talked about earlier are kind of an ego toxicity. And our modern culture is basically kind of ego besotted, uh, all this me, me, me focus. Uh, and the important thing is to remember we're all in this together. Uh, and if your life is seeming kind of meaning, meaningless and pointless right now, start helping other people and you'll start realizing how, or, or helping animals, what have you. Uh, but helping others uh, is a great way to acknowledge this sense of kind of shared purpose and meaning with others and with the universe at large that can lead one into optimism and trust in the universe that can be very, very refreshing and beneficial in this soul journey. But we're really talking about expanding beyond the ego mind, which, of course, is something that I do uh, daily with sacred acoustics meditations to help me get into that one mind mode and really the higher good for all involved. I love that. Um, final question is uh, around people like myself and uh, some others that I know and listen and um, that I work with who identify as an empath and, and or highly sensitive type of person where pick up on energy of people around them. And so if somebody's really struggling, it's, it's, it feels like it's, I, I can take that on. Um, and I've, I've got different things I've been working on to be able to try to cleanse and 
protect myself. Any um, any tips and uh, thoughts around that uh, energy um, that can be feel kind of zapping is you know zap my own life force and energy from me if I don't um, consciously try to put up put up energetic boundaries and and clean my slate and think of cord cutting, think of protective light around me, all the things that I've tried. Any any thoughts or tips on any of that? Well, I'll say that my daughter is one of those empaths. And that's what we learned over time is that when she would get so emotional, she was expressing other people's emotions, not her own. And uh, I still see her do it today. You know, she'll she'll see something happen and she'll respond for the other person on their behalf. It's really interesting. And you brought up some excellent, uh, very conscious ways to uh, improve that. But boundaries, I think, is the most important there. And so whether that's, you know, cutting the cords is one of them. I actually did that exercise with my own daughter when I was so attached to wanting to fix her. So when you're cutting the cords, with someone, it doesn't mean you don't love them because of course I did, but I wanted to cut that particular energy between us and it worked very well. But in terms of her, she's just had to learn uh, to tell herself, that's not my emotion. And she's learned little clues that kind of show her. One person told me uh, when I was, I experienced this in a much milder fashion, but uh, she said, when you feel like I felt a pain in my heart and she said, well, when you feel it, uh, horizontal, it's not yours. When you feel it vertical, it's yours, right? So I don't know if that's going to be the case for every single person, but uh, we can develop those uh, kind of personal cues in our own bodies uh, where we, you know, a, a pendulum or something like that, where you, you, you use your body as a pendulum to give you that yes, no answer. Uh, is this mine or someone else's? And if it's yours, you want to process it. If it's not yours, you want to, you know, shield yourself from it uh, and, and know somewhere inside of you, that's not mine, that uh, you can have compassion for whatever that person is going through. But the empathy is actually, you know, compassion is understanding their feelings. Empathy is feeling their feelings. So that's where you can still have compassion, but not take on their feelings. And honestly, you're going to be much better help for someone. This is, could be another motivation. Uh, if you're not taking on their feelings, mm -hmm. if you're strong in your feelings, you can help them process their feelings much, much better than going all the way to feeling their feelings, but not so easy for uh, all of us. So good to good to bring that up. Absolutely. Observe, observe, not absorb is a popular phrase I've seen out That's there. That's a great phrase. I love that. Yeah. I don't know who coined that, but thank you for touching on that. Um, so uh, this is this has just been wonderful. I know we could go on forever because you there's so many other things I had tabbed here. Maybe we'll do a another round someday. Um, but I I know you've got uh, other places to be and people to talk to, and I am so grateful to have you um, to have you back, Dr. Alexander, and to have you on for the first time, Karen. It really has been phenomenal. I'm so appreciative of not only having you here, but also the message and the work that you're doing and how devoted you are to spread these messages because it really is fundamentally about people enjoying their lives more. And that's, I mean, that's what I see. So um, I always love to close with a quote um, and uh, I think one of you had one in mind. So go ahead and share that now and any closing comments, feel free. Okay, well, we often quote Einstein. I mean, all through our books, you'll find Einstein quotes. And he was right about so many things, although we missed the boat on entanglement and quantum physics. But my, one of my favorite quotes from Einstein, uh, he, he said, you can live your life as if nothing is a miracle or as, as if everything is. And I think he was implying that we should follow the latter course, which is absolutely pathway that I think Karen and I are, are following in our lives. And I just want to share um, our gratitude with you, Cheris, for doing what you do to bring this message to all of your individual clients and uh, listeners, because uh, we can't, no one can do this uh, ourselves. It takes a lot, a lot of people to, to really bring people along, but also your listeners have our gratitude right. for take yeah. any time you take to consider these topics 
to take time to go within, to clear your own emotional traumas. And you have our gratitude because as each of you are taking the time and devotion to do this, you're helping all of us, not only yourself, but you're helping all of us because we're all part of this one mind. So if you're not gonna do it for yourself, you gotta do it for others. And that is facing your own fears, belief systems, what have you, and really become that soul that you came here to be. Beautiful. Thank you. Thank you both. Thank you, Cher. Thank you. Great being with you. I hope you're enjoying my Cherish Your Life podcast. If this is supporting you in any way, please review, subscribe, and share it with friends and family. You can follow me on social media at Cherish Your Life, and my website is CherishYourLife.com. Yep, my name's unique. Here's an easy tip for you to pronounce and spell it. It's like the city, Paris, but with a CH. Special thanks to my dear friend, Paul Suyelgis, who enhanced and mixed the musical track. Little did we know back in college in the 90s, while my then boyfriend, now husband, and I listened to Paul riff on his guitar, that he'd be helping me decades later give a creative touch to something called a podcast. Podcast.